We live in a constantly changing world where the speed of information is changing how we think and act and connect with one another. When people in a society lose faith in their institutions, in God and in each other, the nation collapses. We need help rebuilding trust and tying it all together. Welcome to All That To Say, a podcast exploring the interrelatedness of all things in long-form conversation. Social entrepreneur and author Ben Sand joins Jim Lyon to imagine a new paradigm of mobilizing community and empowering leaders for the common good. I'm a news junkie. I like the news. Uh, that sometimes causes my blood pressure to go up and sometimes I'm, I'm okay with it. But when people ask me, what do I like to do just to relax or, or, or you know, take a chill? I'm actually in the news. And we live in a world where news is accessible on so many fronts. So one of the things I'm reading about in the news and it's popping up in a lot of places, and I read widely from the New York Times to the Wall Street Journal, it's on television from Fox News to CNN, even San Francisco Chronicle. It's about a story in Portland, Ben Sand, about the Organ Cares Fund, a unique stand-up that maybe does not have any precedent in this country uh, in these pandemic days. Ben, what's that about? What am I reading about? What's the story? You know, Jim, it's, uh, it's, a striking, it's a striking world that we live in where there are many tensions coming from many different angles. And as everyone remembers, in May, George Floyd was murdered on the streets of Minneapolis and protests erupted in many forms and shapes across the country, across the world. And Portland, in many ways, has been kind of at the epicenter of those protests. And that's where you live. And that's where I live. I, I, I could throw a rock three times and hit the protests from my office. And so, so much of the last year of my life has really been enveloped by a big question, a big set of questions and a big set of conversations that end in exclamation marks about what's happening in our world today regarding the topic of race. And uh, in Oregon, um, there, there was some big conversations being had about, well, what does this mean? What do these protests really mean? How much of this is uh, about uh, finding justice for a, his, a his, historicity of you know, racism, both in Oregon and across the country, and what are we going to do about that? What is the solve for the wound? Um, some of the protests had, had, you know, takeovers from outside forces, but ultimately what, what rose up, Jim, in late March, or excuse me, late May, was a historic moment where a group of about 300 black leaders demanded an audience with the governor. This is all in Oregon. All in Oregon. You're talking in the context of your home. That's right, yeah. 300 black leaders in Oregon demanded an audience with the governor, with the Speaker of the House and the President of the Senate, Oregon's um, cities, the largest cities and their mayors, um, county commissioners, um, and and other legislators, where for now five weeks, what ended up being five weeks in a row, there was a two-hour call every week where black leaders you know, demanded a response. And... Um, we were privileged, I was privileged to be a part of some of those conversations. And, and what emerged from that was a comprehensive strategy to try to address some of the systemic issues that are at play um, regarding race in Oregon. And oh, But wait, I mean, you're talking about a, 
a long-running debate in this country about race, but you're also talking about it in the midst of the pandemic. I mean, doesn't the pandemic speak into this? Well, 100%. I mean, so, so these black leaders are, they're, they're wanting an audience about race, but it's also in the midst of the pandemic. Are those intersection, those two issues, those two trains of thought, are they colliding here? Yeah, there were. So you, you can appreciate, right, um, a Zoom call with hundreds of people on it uh, where the governor is sitting there listening. And what emerged from that was an immediate response to the pandemic in order to address the disproportionate effects of COVID-19 on the black community. And what emerged was also a long-term, multi-year response to address some of the systemic inequities that exist um, when studying the disproportionality in outcomes from Oregon's black community versus other communities in Oregon. And so we jumped in all, we jumped all in, um, we being the organization I work for, to address some of the immediate response to the pandemic. And the Oregon Cares Fund is actually funded through pandemic relief federal money. I mean, that's the idea. Yep, exactly. So um, the Congress passed what's called the CARES Act, um, a historic uh, amount of money that was- Spring of 2020. That's right. That was, that was put forward to states from the U.S. Treasury. So Oregon received $1.4 billion. Okay, so the feds passed this multi-trillion dollar deal that most of us remember. Yeah. And, and the- the main way that's distributed is it's just given in lump sums to the states yep. for the states to determine how do we want to use this for pandemic relief in our territory. That's exactly right. And Oregon gets $1.4 billion. Yep. Oregon okay. gets $1.4 billion. And, and basically, many states um, you know, passed a large majority of those dollars down to counties in different jurisdictions, cities and counties. Passed the buck, so to speak. That's right. Yep, <laughs> exactly. And, and then there were, there were discretionary dollars that were left over based off of state priorities. And so Oregon was left with about a, a fund of about $200 million um, that was at the discretion of the Speaker of the House and the Governor. And, uh, and we, $1.4 billion, mm-hmm. it's all passed out, $200 million remain uncalled for. Yep, exactly. And so we decided to go for it. And, uh, and we put together a proposal where... Um, we invited the Oregon legislature to wrestle with a concept. And the question was, what would it look like to take $62 million and to target those resources to ensure that irreparable harm is not done in Oregon's black community? What would we, what would we build if we, could, if we could address not just the systemic inequities, but also the current kind of ravaging effects of COVID-19 on black individuals, black families, Black-owned businesses and Black-led nonprofits, and you're talking about sixty-two million dollars out of one point four billion. So what's that? Four percent, or yeah, it's a, it's a little, it's a little shy of five percent. Uh, so about four and a half percent. And the proposition is: what if we targeted that to communities that are Black? Uh, I mean, this is this is the revolutionary part of it, actually. That it's designated based on race. That's that's the predicate, and probably where the controversy is coming from. But the idea being that this black community has suffered disproportionately or needs targeted investment to be able to provide pandemic relief. It's not, I mean, it's in the context of a history of racism, but you're really responding to today's crisis. How does the pandemic economically and socially disrupt lives? And the black community, that's disproportionate. That's your position. And, yeah, I mean, and, and, and the other relief isn't getting there. It's just not finding its way to that part of our community. That's exactly right. And in Oregon, it's a particularly bold statement 
um, if you if you Google um, Oregon, you'll find and Oregon's history. What you'll find is that Oregon was literally established to become a white utopia. That was the design of Oregon's founders. How about whoa, whoa, whoa. So the Oregon Trail and all those little pioneers, you know, uh, Little House on the Prairie on the way uh, to get out. There's this beautiful landscape. Right. Let's all go west. Let's all go west. And then Oregon is actually a state at the Civil War, isn't it? I mean, it joined the Union mm-hmm. on the free state side, as it were. I mean, they were all in. And you're telling me, no, no, that was about white utopia? Ultimately, Oregon, in all of its beauty... And all of its and all of its kind of majesty um, was organized by a group of people that believed that whiteness was superior to blackness, and the state was founded with by people who designed um, a government to keep it that way. And what we're saying in 2020 is um, acknowledging the history and acknowledging the complexity of our current moment, both in Oregon and, and across our country. Um, we want to establish fund a fund for black people with a capital B. Yeah, but, okay, so I'm hearing your spin on that history, and you love Oregon, I know you do, mm-hmm. but I mean, was that codified? I mean, when you say they organized this to be a white utopia, they, in, in the original formation of the Oregon territory or statehood, it was, it was stated out loud, this is really for white people. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, also, I mean, codified in in Oregon's kind of incorporating documents are there are statements made by certain people that declare that, um, you know, that um, people of color, particularly with a focus on the black community, you know, um, are are unable to govern um, due to um, their design. They were they they were perceived to be sub. Ordinate. Correct. To white folk. Yes, that's right. Yeah. And so in a moment of Black Lives Matter, in you know, min, you know, a hundred and some years later, part of what is so momentous about this conversation uh, that's taking place in Oregon that has now become a conversation that's taken place across the country, um, out of Oregon, which is not certainly something we expected, is is really this big question. In light of our collective history, what is a remedy, um, both an immediate remedy and a long-term remedy um, and how can we have that discussion? And that certainly has taken over my life the last six months. You know, I love news, but I'm also kind of a history geek. So I keep coming back to the history because I think most people listening today could not put their arms around what you're describing. That Oregon, out on the West Coast, often seen today as a kind of progressive, uh, liberally framed uh, civilization, certainly in relationship to some other more conservative parts of the country, actually was formed in this almost... Uh, alt-right way of of denying equality from the beginning by design. Right. And even though it would join the Union and fight on the Union side during the Civil War, it's a, it, it, was, it was fighting to preserve the Union, maybe to say, we don't think slavery is a good idea. But if you're a black person, don't think about living here. I mean, Correct. is that really what you're describing? That's how it was. That, that's exactly what I'm describing. And, and as time marched on... And a lot of things have changed since the Civil War days in terms of legal uh, wrestling with uh, equity, access, and so on in our society. Oregon didn't actually grow into that in the same way some other places might have. Um, so, for instance, you know, so that's all that's all good news. But 
Hey, that's a long time ago. In 1960, if I'm a black person, am I buying my house anywhere I want in Portland, or how's that work? Well, I'll give you an example. So imagine, as a listener, where, wherever you live, um, think of the second largest city in your state. In 1940, the second largest city in Oregon was a city called Vanport. Um, this is a city that was literally established after the GI Bill came forward um, in the context of a world war. Uh, it was a hastily constructed urban housing project. At the time, it was the largest urban housing project in the United States of America. And this city grew to become the second largest city in Oregon. 48,000 people lived there. And why? Why did they build this city? They built this city because it was illegal to be black and to own real estate in Portland. So this is during World War II. My guess is a lot of uh, black Americans are going out west to work in the factories. The, the war effort really was a big manufacturing boom. And in order to accommodate that, because you couldn't live anywhere else, a whole city had to be created, essentially, for those black workers. Is, That's right. And so it's what started in 1940. By 1948, it's the second largest city in Oregon. On May 4th in 1948 at 4.05 p.m., a dike that was holding back the Columbia River broke and a flood like Hurricane Katrina came and wiped out the entire city of Vanport. And at that time, people are immediately displaced in, in Oregon. And the question is, what do we do next? Many people, and this is where Portland, Oregon's history is no different than Detroit or Chicago or Atlanta or name a major city in the United States where communities, um, a map was laid out of the city and a red line was drawn around certain communities in Portland where black people could then move to live but still could not own property, which didn't change until about 10 years later. Ultimately, when you look at the history of race in the American city, it's quite this question of where can people and can, where can people live depending on the color of their skin, um, what we have is, is a very complex weave around the history of race. And, I, and all I'm saying about, about this is ultimately in Oregon, we, we decided that 2020 was going to be a year of reckoning. And today, in the pandemic, I mean, this long history, uh, our present is always informed by our history, and sometimes in ways unforeseen. But the history you've described suggests that today in the pandemic, black Oregonians, who may by law now be able to live anywhere they want, but economically and socially have not actually historically had access to the same opportunities or services that white Oregonians might have had, that when the pandemic hits, the, the crisis, the flood from the Columbia comes, the remedy, the relief that the federal government gave to Oregon was, was not directed by design and consequently passed by the black community. Everybody's suffering by the pandemic, but some more so. And they're not able to get the help they need without targeted intervention. Am I reading you right? Yeah, that's exactly right. And I think the, the research is ubiquitous, right? So there's um, some of our country's best consulting firms, like McKinsey, have published reports on the disproportionate impact of COVID-19 on the black community. Uh, the data is out there to suggest that black-owned businesses are closing at a higher rate than white-owned businesses, that black, uh, black families do not have the same access to kind of the ability to access health care or to sustain um, some of the effects, the economic effects of this. And so we tried to, and are continuing to try to have a conversation that suggests that yes, we are all universally affected by the pandemic and COVID-19, but a targeted approach for those most affected is actually the best way to govern.
which brings us back to the Oregon Cares Fund. Ultimately, the state of Oregon expressed by its legislature in the summer of last year said, yes, we'll buy your proposition. We're going to put $62 million aside to target relief in the black community. Yep, that's right. And, and it, you know, this fund was established, you know, not without its own controversy. Um, the state of Oregon's lawyers wrote a brief that suggested that this was an unconstitutional move. And the state of Oregon's legislature decided to move it forward anyway. And um, we we wrote a, br- a counter brief suggesting that it's wholly constitutional. Um, and, and yet the state of Oregon and the governor in the state of Oregon, Kate Brown, did something heroic in my view, took, gathered courage and moved this fund forward. And the results speak for themselves, um, as does the controversy. Well, there are some things about the Federal CARES Act that also need to be understood, I think, that as I uh, remember it, it, it's launched in the spring of 2020, and it's a huge uh, staunch of cash distributed to the states, but it must be in the hands of the people in need by the end of the fiscal calendar year, December 31, 2020, right? So, so there's a clock ticking. Yep. So if you're, if you're authorized, you authorized, uh, the state of Oregon has authorized $62 million for targeted relief in the black community. That's within the calendar of 2020. So when, New Year's Eve came, this last uh, turn of the page, party over. Yeah, the pressure was, you got to get this money out, you got to get it out fast, um, for which we were eager to do. Um, Ultimately, you know, barriers um, emerged, um, you know, primarily through the form of of what has become now three different lawsuits um, that complicated the effort. But yeah, we've been racing and and worked as hard as we could to get that money out to black individuals and families, business owners, et cetera. and that requires to stand up in short order of a very complex weave of uh, organization, right? Mm-hmm. Staff and uh, not when you say we, we're talking about a, a uh, what? The contingent I know is what you work for. Yeah. You're the founder of it. it used to be called the Portland Leadership Foundation. Yeah. Now it's called the contingent. Right. What, what's its role? It's the administrator of the grant or it's exactly. the owner of the money? What? Yeah. So the organization I work for is called the contingent and... Uh, we were asked to administer the fund, um, which, you know, on the main, uh, we were eager to do. Ultimately, it's a complicated thing to um, try to get funds out to um, black Oregonians um, when... And ev- let me just say that yeah. our guy, Ryan Woolsey, who's yeah. uh, such a genius at pulling up stuff right now on our screen, he's uh, showing us some of the website there mm-hmm. about how this was stood up, yep. put a public face. And I'm sorry, go on. Yeah, and so ultimately, you know, in the midst of a pandemic, you know, I've been sitting in my office by myself for six months trying to work with 30 people that are sitting in their homes trying to get dollars out to the people that need it most. And it, it certainly created, a, you know, its own challenges from an administrative perspective. But I am proud to say that, um, that we've been able to hit the target um, uh, prior to um, some of the legal challenges that we've experienced. And... Help me understand uh, the diff- the change of dynamic in public relief to this black community in Oregon, and and it's a statewide initiative. Although uh, Portland is the largest metro, uh, and that's where you live, relative to preceding federal programs that ostensibly are for everybody. So, like the Small Business Administration, they they administered a large part of the Federal CARES Act, sure did uh, through the famous PPP program, the Payroll Protection Plan, and so on. 
How did that land in the black community? Again, to disproportionality, is, is there evidence that the SBA, for instance, and again, not necessarily by design, but just because of the way in which things work, did not reach the black community at the same level that it does other communities? Yeah, so one of the challenges or one of the conversations we, we are having and, and ought to have as a country has to do with this idea of systemic racism. You know, where, how, do, how does an entire system how could an entire system be racist? I think one of the misnomers um, of the term or the idea of critical race theory is that there are there that you have to that it requires a bad actor, someone with some sort of nefarious intent to harm people in order for it to be racist. And I just would purport that that's actually not how racism works. <laughs> there are moments in our history where a seed gets planted that sprouts challenges. Um, in certain communities' lives, whether that's an undocumented community or an immigrant community, or in this case, the black community. And so historically, the black community has not had a relationship, has not had the same kind of banking relationships, the same kind of access to capital or um, access to credit that that other people have had. And some of that has to do with um, the ability to build wealth over time. And some of it has to do with the trust um, in certain institutions. And so the Small Business Administration is a great example. In 2017, in Oregon, um, you know, just, just over 70 loans were given to black-owned businesses in 2017. In, in the whole state. In the whole state. In 2019, um, this, the SBA only issued four loans to black-owned businesses in Oregon. In 2020, the pandemic hits, the SBA is running the payment protection program, and many black businesses... Um, no longer carry the same kind of trust in the Small Business Administration, but also, you know, um, maybe have some barriers to the kinds of banking relationships that were required to get the PPP program. I don't know about you and Jim and Church of God Ministries, but I bet that uh, that when the PPP came, you called your banker. Right. And uh, many many black-owned businesses don't have those kinds of relationships with their banks. And so, what what happened is is kind of a a convergence of factors led. Um, black businesses to struggle to access the payment protection program. And so juxtaposed to um, kind of this broad program, um, which which did good for many people, um, for the black community, it, there was not the same access to the funds. So in 2019, the Small Business Administration owned, loans for black-owned businesses resources. We start the Oregon CARES Fund. We have awarded 600 grants in 60 days. To, to black businesses and uh, community organizations and things that otherwise might have been in a relief stream but weren't because it wasn't targeted. I mean, that's, that's your argument. These are that, businesses that did not access PPP money that are at the heart of the black experience in Oregon who experienced an existential crisis but did not have access to the resources. The systems that were used to, to proliferate the resource did not benefit the black community. And so we decided to do something about it. And again, you're not contextualizing that the systems were by design by today's players to deny black access. It's just that the reality of history and experience has made it, that's the outcome. And to change that outcome, intentionality is required in the way in which you see the Oregon Cares Fund providing. And what I would say is, is that I, I don't think that there's someone in some room in Washington, D.C. wringing their hands and trying to hurt the black community. Yet these programs, historically, as they roll out, disproportionately and negatively affect the black community. And as a result of that, I believe that a targeted approach 
is needed in this time and will increasingly become needed. Now, in the spirit of full disclosure, um, some people think that I'm purporting ideas that are unconstitutional. And that is at the crux of the legal battles. There's a legal battle. And, and that's much in the news. Uh, hey, Ryan, thanks uh, for pulling this up. Uh, what, what are we looking at here? This is an article from uh, the New York Times, uh, which speaks about this whole subject because it's getting national attention. And uh, the New York Times uh, and the Wall Street Journal, as I've already said, I, I mean, I've read about this in those places. Here you are. Uh, fascinating. We were on Tucker Carlson last night. Well, there you go, on Fox News. And... And the drama, the controversy has uh, spun around the race-based nature of this. I mean, what, what do you say to the, to the, the white guy who's saying, oh, I've got a small business too, and I, I live in Oregon, and I need some help. Why can't I get money out of the Oregon Cares Fund in the way that my black neighbor does down the street? What do you say to that? Our response is, when you look at the, uh, the history of our country and the challenges that we face on aggregate. Doing good for one community does not mean that every other community is harmed. And there is something to be said about the fact that we ought to look back and acknowledge our racial history in our country and acknowledge that the conversation that we're having about race and particularly blackness in America is that the experience of the black community is one of consistent discrimination, consistent oppression, and, and that, is a, that is a multifaceted, affective experience in the black community. And so what I would say to someone who says, I should also have the right to access these funds, I would say, let's, let's have a holistic conversation about rights then. How did we get to this point? And is it now not a time for generosity? Is it now not a time for moral imagination, for us to imagine what the moral thing to do is in light of our collective racial history, to ensure that in the midst of a once in a generation moment, that the group of people that has been historically discriminated against is given an opportunity to stay whole um, in spite of the fact that the systems that the federal government is using will not do that on their own. Well, and I'm just observing um, without an extra grind, it's $62 million, which is a big chunk of change. Mm -hmm. that's, that's big money for anybody's measure. But it's $62 million out of $1.4 billion in relief. So uh, $1.3 billion plus is on the table to provide relief for everyone, right? Right. So, which doesn't include the PPP program. Which, which was a, a whole other uh, gift of cash, so to speak. And and so the 62 million is a relatively, it's a big number, but it's small in proportionality to the whole relief program. So and if I'm a white guy in Oregon, can I, can I find help otherwise? In other words, the, the fact that the Oregon Cares Fund exists for the black community does not mean that I, as a white guy, don't have other options? Correct. Ab absolutely. In fact, you know, part of the study of the PPP program is to suggest that white people have greatly benefited from that program, but that's not the only program, right? I mean, the state of Oregon is, has, and as, as many states have, have organized all kinds of different forms of relief um, for small businesses, for nonprofit leaders, and for individuals, et cetera. And so um, not only are there options in Oregon, um, there are um, more dollars on the way. Uh, so so your, you, your argument or your sense is 
if I'm a white business owner in Oregon, I'm not being victimized by the Oregon Cares Fund targeting the black community. I'm saying that doing good for one group of people doesn't mean that someone else is being hurt. It's and, not a zero-sum game. Yeah, yeah. All right. And so this, is, this has been a big drama. Uh, now you're in uh, legal proceedings uh, that will probably stretch on for a time. And, uh, and as, as we've jumped in in this conversation, Ben Sand, about the Oregon Cares Fund, it's, it's really not the story. And I know that some people listening to this are already taking sides. But it's, it's born out of a journey because you're, in the, you're a white guy. <laughs> for someone who may be not seen the, the video of this, uh, you're a white guy and you've got this deep passion to help the black community and the disadvantaged. And that has to do with who you are, it seems to me. Because your whole life, your adult life, has been vested in this kind of pursuit, not just on race, but on helping the disadvantaged or the vulnerable, uh, the people who might not otherwise have an advocate. I mean, that's my observation. And it also is driven by a profound spirituality. In other words, you are in this fight because you think that's what Jesus wants you to do. Yeah. Am I getting that? Yeah, 100%. Yeah, 100%. And I think so much of it, Jim, is, you know, we all have a story and uh, our our view of the world oftentimes orients from our experiences. And so, you know, for me, I grew up uh, in a single parent home with five other brothers and sisters and no pop. Because? Uh, my dad died when I was six years old. And, you know, we were kind of thrust into situational poverty. Um, and my mom, while she did the best that she could, you know, um, struggled. And, uh, and my relationship with her was... And, and even continues to be, you know, kind of an ongoing Could we say that drama. your mom's own journey in life has been very difficult. That's exactly right. And it right. made it hard on her kids too. That's right, yeah. And so, you know, for, for me, growing up, uh, there was a disconnect between kind of the experience of every now and then kind of being forced to wake up on a Sunday morning and get on your Sunday best and go to, well, went to this small Swedish Lutheran church. Because you got Swedish blood going. I got sweet, I'm a, I'm a hundred percent sweet. I mean, you, you are that Nordic guy. Yeah. I'm wondering where the pickled things are in this room, actually. <laughs> you need some lutefisk. That's exactly right. Uh, so, you know, we'd go to this Lutheran church and, and there just seemed to be something incongruent with, uh, my lived experience day to day and, uh, and this sort of kind of Christian show. That uh, that we were expected to be actors within, and so you know, for me, I left my faith uh, behind, and I felt you know no no loyalty to Christianity. Uh, Did you? I mean, you kind of left your family behind. In other words, uh, my understanding of Ben Sand is that as a young guy in your teens, you're you're really becoming self sufficient. Yeah, I mean, you're kind of of necessity. Yeah, if you need shoes, you got to go get some money to get shoes. Yeah, I got to figure out what lawn I'm going to mow. You know, I'm smoking cigarettes at 14 years old, just trying to make ends meet, <laughs> and uh, you know, pretty jaded. I had a, having a relatively jaded view of both my past and my future. Well, what I'm driving to though is economically and socially. Even though you might be uh, of Swedish stock in the Pacific Northwest, where that can be a plus, you. You're really at the, the receding end of life. Uh, the opportunity is not yours just because it's there. You have to force yourself and force the system to work for you. That's right. Yeah, absolutely. 100%. And, 
And that's the experience of many white people. I mean, I think that's part of the tension where I'm kind of going. Because that's right. Sometimes when people talk about, well, why is that being targeted to a black community or a Hispanic community or whatever? Hey, I'm a white guy and I didn't have any breaks either. That's right. And yeah. that's your story. That is my story. Yeah, that is my story. And, it, and it, when I think back on kind of how I got here, um, it's through a tremendous amount of hard work. Um, and, but it also is not the same. I have not had the same lived experience, I don't think, as my black brothers and sisters. Um, and there have been some unearned, unearned advantages that have kind of come my way. Um, and some of that very much has to do with my own journey of faith and the kinds of Christian communities I have found myself in. Um, and some of it quite literally just has to do with the fact that I'm white. Let's, well, let's go to, let's go there. So you're, you're a teenager and you are finding yourself incrementally day by day, week by week, and month by month in your teens. When most people are still today trying to figure out how to get their switch going or uh, Xbox, you are are trying to figure out how do I get a pair of shoes? What am I going to do? And how do I escape from this house that is causing me so much grief? And and you what? You you get to school? You you go to college or you start working at 7-Eleven? What happens yeah, to you? Yeah, so 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 much of it I I would say for me, you know, when you study poverty um, and the impacts on poverty, what you'll find is that the research generally suggests that there's two ways to get out of poverty. One is you get sponsored out. And another is that you have a unique gift that um, propels you out. Um, and it's generally one of those two scenarios. Um, I had um, a, good, a great grace that I now would attribute to a grace that comes from God um, to have the benefit of both. Um, I had the benefit of both a sponsor and some unique gifts that propelled me out. You know, Jim, for me, uh, I follow Jesus now. And the reason I follow Jesus is because, you know, in that same 14-year-old moment, right, uh, of a, an angry kid with, with no, two, without two nickels to rub together, uh, a deep sense of cynicism about the future, a college student um, from where I'm from in Spokane, Washington, um, stepped in to my life and decided to build a relationship with me. And um, that, was unearned, that was unearned. I didn't ask for it. I didn't actually want it at the time. Um, but this college student was volunteering with an organization called Young Life. And uh, for those of you listening, Young Life is a, an evangelical youth ministry organization. And um, he was volunteering with this organization and started to build a relationship with me. His goal was to kind of earn the right to be heard in my life. And, uh, and he put himself through hell to build a relationship with me because I was kind of giving him a bit of a stiff arm saying like, thanks, but no, thanks. I, I don't need you. I don't trust you. I don't trust your Christianity. But ultimately, you know, working hard to kind of bust through some of, um, some of the barriers that I put in front of him, this, this man whose name is Kevin, you know, did earn the right to be heard in my life. And, and through a consistent display of, of a desire for authentic relationship, I began to experience belonging for the very first time. I, you know, for the first time, there was a man that wanted to watch me play football. There was a man who was interested in spending time with me without wanting to take something from me. And, um, and I came to realize over time that, that what was inside of him was Jesus of Nazareth, this kind of incarnational mystery 
that what informed his ethics and what informed his choices was actually his reading of the New Testament and particularly the Gospels. And, and I decided that I wanted to follow Kevin first and I followed Kevin for a while and eventually I found myself following Jesus. And the, by, the byproduct of that was that my choices began to change. My view on the world began to change. I started to orient myself through the, through the lens of Jesus as opposed to through the lens of my pain. I started to have an imagination for the dangerous life, the adventurous life that Jesus calls us into as opposed to a life of um, violence and self-destruction. And that pivot um, very much had to do with the fact that someone sponsored me into that life. Um, and it was, it was a very relational experience. And now, I, had a gift, I have a gift to write. I like to write. I did some political speech writing in high school and college. Ah, uh, political speech writing. You know, I was, I was able to kind of get my way into college. Like a moth to the flame. That's right. I was able to get my, my way into college, and that was part of it too. So it was this kind of combination of someone sponsored me um, into a new epoch of life. And also I had some unique gifts that God gave me that, uh, that have brought me to this moment. So from the streets of Spokane, yeah. you go to school. Uh, you play football at school. Yeah. Because you're a football guy. Yeah. Which, you know, I don't hear you talking about much, but I mean, you, you love the game. I do love the game, although I will say that um, it is true that white men can't jump. <laughs> and so I, uh, I quit playing football, uh, recognizing that my, that my NFL dream was never going to come to pass. And so I have this kind of cognitive dissonance towards sport because it robbed me from my <laughs> yeah, dreams. Yeah, yeah. So, that's a love-hate relationship. I get that. Uh, don't get me going about my football journey, mm-hmm. which was completely different and still very painful. <laughs> but anyway, you you go to school, you find yourself after school going to Portland. Yeah. And that's where you settled. Yeah. All right. And what are you doing there? I mean, so you got a degree and you're an English major. Yep. I mean, you are a guy who's articulate. We've already learned that today. Do not get me started on conjunctive adverbs. <laughs> because you we'll, could... Uh, the rest of the podcast will be... A, you know, well... I, I've learned about all the different it's with That's apostrophes right. just yes. with one sit down with you. That said, uh, you, you give yourself to this young life because young life was part of that sponsorship into a new epoch as you described, right? That's exactly right. Yeah. So I, I you know, um, met, met Jesus through a relationship in the context of an organization called Young Life and out of college decided, you know, I, I want to do this. I want to give my life away to other people. That seems exactly what Jesus is asking of us in the Gospels. And so I'd like to do that. And I was looking for a delivery system and I chose Young Life out of college. And so I moved to Portland uh, and my goal was to build um, a nonprofit kind of expression of, of Young Life in Portland's inner city. Um, and as a city kid, you know, that felt germane to me, but ultimately um, it ended up being a bit of a, a very fast, very wild ride trying to integrate, uh, if you will, you know, a model that is, you know, largely works in the white suburbs um, in a very diverse environment. And I learned a lot in a short amount of time. Yeah, but you've already disclosed that there's several threads working here, even in your young life, and you're still a young guy. I mean, I'm Darth Vader, I'm your father, but <laughs> but early on in I'll your... I'll be Luke, I'm good, but I'll be Luke. <laughs> okay, early on in your adult life, you're, you're already threads are surfacing because you have an experience on the street. That's just what I would call it. You did not grow up in the white picket fence uh, idealized view of American life, especially for white folks. 
you grew up on the street and you had to be tough and you had to be resilient and you had to learn how to be self-sufficient and you had to learn how to play the system yeah. to make it work. So you got that going. Then you have the Jesus thread that that redirects your thinking, but your passion, your kind of just vibe is still the same. I mean, that's my guess. And, and then you have this kind of organizational moxie, uh, entrepreneurial just kind of gift set where you can figure out how to go from A to B and how to pull together a team or a group or an idea and put feet on it. I mean, we're here, where we start in this conversation is about a, a huge undertaking, but it's the same skill set. You're describing moving to Portland, pulling your street smart, I'm going to go to the inner city, my Jesus thing, I'm working for Young Life, and my building thing, we're going to build something here. Yeah. And that's what happened. Young yeah. Life prospers there. Yeah, out of the gate, you know, in within two years, Young Life in Portland, Oregon, became the largest kind of urban Young Life area in the United States. And, uh, you know, we thought we were cooking with gas. And um, and in many ways, if you were to look at the outputs, we were, right? Um, and so much of, I think, kind of the, the trap of uh, Christian evangelicalism is how big is it? How many numbers are do you have? in dollars and people. And we begin to co-modify, I think, um, the expression of Jesus or the kingdom of God by way of the size of a thing. And so for all intents and purposes, right, in two short years, we're the largest urban Young Life area in the United States. We've got a ballooning budget, um, Young Life, the president and the president of Young Life, and everybody's looking at us going like, this is the future. Yeah, this is the future. (laughs) This is as good as it gets. And... uh, and simultaneously, I've got two young men that are living in my house. Um, You're a single guy. Yeah, and one is a gentleman by the name of Jerry Lawrence. We called him Snoop because he looked like Snoop the Rapper, and another was a kid by the name of Trey. Jerry and Trey um, had really challenging scenarios uh, in their homes, and so they spent a lot of time in mine. And uh, and that's what I, that's what Kevin taught me. You identified with Snoop and Trey. Yeah, the 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 premise was you show up. You are in the right to be heard. You, it's better to give than it is to receive. It's, it actually is the ethic of Jesus to open your home to a stranger. It is better to die to yourself. And so therefore my whole life, um, and I'm trying to live this way today, you know, is, is not about me or mine or what I want or desire. And so these two young men had a need. We took them, I, you know, took them in and kind of plugged them into the evangelical program. Jim and and you know for all intents and purposes I'm feeling like man we're this is great this is working they're showing up to the events they're doing the thing I can tell a story to my donors you know the whole nine that summer we took and you care for them though yeah I mean, we, we it love wasn't them. it wasn't just a mercantile enterprise no but but there was definitely a program we were running yeah you know and uh, and that program culminates in a summer camp experience and so at this summer camp these two young men. Um, with really tumultuous backgrounds, kind of stand up and decide, I want to give my life to Jesus. This is the altar call moment. That's the altar call moment that every kind of evangelical enterprise longs for. And uh, and I'm not saying they're all not genuine. I'm just saying in this case, uh, Young Life has it down, uh, and there is a model to be run here, and and the model worked. And uh, you're watching these two guys. Campfire's going. That's right. They're and you're, standing and up. You're, you're pulling for them to, this is your minute, guys. Stand up. I'm saying, I've worked pretty hard to get you to this moment. Like, stand your butt up. <laughs> <laughs> and so, uh, you know, they, they do. And, and they did. They did. And they decide, I want to I I give my life to Jesus. And you know, Jim, I was thrilled. 
I was. You felt it. I felt it. And two weeks later, Jerry and Trey shot and killed another kid in Kenilworth Park on 34th and Holgate in Southeast Portland. And, uh, and I was working with a detective to try to find them as they were on the run. Uh, was this a, a, a crime of the moment or a theft or what? It was a, uh, it was a crime that came about because of a fragmented social structure that these two young men had been steeped in since they were babies. And they found themselves in environments where violence, drug abuse, um, other forms of kind of criminal activity um, was relatively commonplace. They were normalized. It was normalized. And, and these two young men found themselves pulling a trigger and killing a young man. And, and that, that was a shakedown for me. You know, that was really the beginning of a, of a big change. They were apprehended. They were apprehended. Jerry is out. Trey is still in prison. I saw him about two months ago. And how did, I mean, this isn't about their story. It, it was a shakedown for them. Uh, two weeks after they stood up at the campfire, how'd that impact you? For me, I realized that I do believe that uh, everyone needs Jesus, but I do not believe that Jesus is all that everyone needs. Say that again. I believe that everyone needs Jesus, but there's more. That's exactly right. I think that, that when considering some of the most challenging, most complex human environments in the American city or in the American Appalachia or in the American West, that um, just a spiritual renewal is not enough. We have to think about what renewal looks like in a social context at scale for the spiritual renewal to land. I'll say it this way. Jesus has a parable. He says, a man went out into a field and found a treasure. And then he dug a hole and he buried the treasure and he went and he sold everything he had. And he went and he took that money and then he bought the whole field. And I think that's a parable of counting the cost of what it means to accept the treasure of the truth of the kingdom and putting it all on the line and so much of, I think, the story, the parable of, of kind of this kind of goal of Christian life is to assume that spiritual renewal will be enough that will cascade some sort of social renewal. And I actually think that that is short-sighted thinking. So, so much of the parable that we were living in this kind of young life window was like, the kingdom of God is like a kid who goes out to summer camp and finds a treasure and then stuffs his pockets with it and goes back to the hood and gets jumped and beaten and robbed and is, and is more upset than, than where they started. And it's until we're able to integrate the spiritual teachings, the spiritual renewal that I think all people long for into fragmented social structures and into some of these vexing environments in a way that, that cares for the dollars in the sense, that cares for mental health, that cares for addiction to, to substances that cares for how we think about violence, how we think about um, the poor experience and working with the government, until we ask those bigger questions, I fear that this message of Jesus is enough is actually not the lived experience for millions and millions of people. Would it be, if I restated this, uh, I'm trying to put my arms around a really important subject uh, everything we've been talking about is important. <laughs> right here, sure. yeah. you're in our face. Um, 
Jesus is enough if, in fact, we take all of Jesus, not just a part of it, that in some ways our experience uh, culturally and historically in American church life has given us a piece of Jesus. But to be transformed by the renewal of our minds, to actually have the mind of Christ, would compel us to care about the things you're talking about. I'm saying that that is true, and I'm also suggesting that it is going to be increasingly important that we as followers of Jesus think about spiritual socio-renewal as one thing, that we ought not to bifurcate the spiritual and the secular, or the spiritual and the social. I don't think Jesus sees it that way. I think Jesus, consistently throughout the Gospels, finds himself in very vexing social situations and is very comfortable in that and seeks to redeem them in his name. And it is, it is not about going to church or reading a devotional. It's about does the social experience, will that experience be transformed? And I think consistently throughout the Gospels, Jesus is calling people to evaluate both their inner life and also um, the ways that outer, the way that the outer world treats those most vulnerable. He seems to integrate them holistically. That certainly is my perspective. Yeah. So, uh, famously, if Jesus is talking about the last day of judgment, which uh, we often uh, frame in our intersection with Jesus, wow, I'm going, I'm, I'm going to get a pass at the last day. Yeah. Because I believed in Jesus right. and Matthew he, 25. He paid my dues, but I mean, the bigger narrative is. I've, Jesus paid my dues. Jesus paid it all. And so I'm going to get to that judgment day and I'm good. Yeah. Where actually Jesus paints a picture of, well, you're good because you took care of me. Right. And then translated immediately into the warp and woof of the world I walked through. That's right. When I was hungry, did you feed me? When I was naked, did you clothe me? And if you did these things to the least of these, then you did them to me. If you did not do those things, um, then do you recognize me? You ignored me. Do you, do you recognize me? Yeah, and so, I mean, but that's a kind of integration, isn't it? I agree. The, the faith and works, peace, all kinds to comes together there. Yeah. All right, so that's where you landed yeah. after this tragedy in the park. And that led you uh, to pursue ministry differently. Correct. I mean, I mean, you're still that Jesus guy. You're still very alleged to Jesus as Lord and understand that he is bigger than your faults and predilections and all the mess up that each of us comes into this world with. He's bigger than that. But your call from Jesus is bigger than just a conventional church trip. Yeah, I actually would say, you know, um, whether it's Portland or Pittsburgh or Phoenix, I think cities have souls. I think entire, I think entire ecosystems ought to be thought through from a gospel lens. And we need, to, we need to think bigger about how, how the Church of Portland or the Church of Pittsburgh thinks about Portland and thinks about Pittsburgh. And in order for that to happen, we've got to, we've got to really investigate why it is that we have assumed that the church is kind of one institution in a local neighborhood, as opposed to maybe the institution that actually has agents that are represented within all institutions, in all sectors, right? So if we were to look at the private sector or the social sector or the public sector, the, the government, we have people who follow Jesus that work everywhere. And, and we have to, I think, pull back from just our local church experience and imagine the possibility of what it would mean 
for the people of God to live into the ethics of Jesus in their sphere of influence. And if we could kind of get the arrows pointed in the right direction, the big question I was asking and still am asking is, could a kind of socio-spiritual renewal exist for a city or a state or for our country in a way that can actually demonstrate moral authority less about listen to my podcast as I preach and more about this is how we treat the least of these. And so I left Young Life um, recognizing that Young Life as an organization, while it has so many wonderful things about it, was completely kind of inept at asking that question and decided to build an organization designed to ask that question. Okay, so let's talk about city. Hey, Ryan Woolsey, uh, find me a picture of Portland. Let's get, let's get the City of Roses, as, a, there you go. as it's self-called. Stumptown. Uh, you know, Stumptown, maybe a more uh, fun vernacular of the modern age. There's a Portland. Now, now give me one Portland and Mount Hood. There's Mount Hood in the background. This is looking from the West Hills. I know about this place. I went to college there. Right, actually, right on that green mound uh, just past uh, downtown Portland. All right. I, I just want to visualize. I mean, you're looking at this as a place. This is your home. You live out there on the east, southeast side of Portland. And... And as you look at that and you're saying, I've got to do some things differently in my pursuit of following Jesus, you start an organization and you start with empowering or opening up doors for people who might not otherwise ever find themselves at a door to not only find life in Christ, but to find, not only, but to find in a, in a Jesus moment also the opportunities of a lifetime. I think... Um... To address Portland, which is the city in which I have wrapped my heart around, you know, um, depending on where you are, where you're listening to this from or watching this from, you might think of Portland and think of Antifa, or you might think of protests, you might think of a battleground. And I, I want to say that when I think of Portland, I think of a playground. I think of a, I think of of a city that is full of hope and full of possibilities. And I also think of a city that without an intentional organizing from the people of Jesus will not fully live into that hope or those possibilities. And so out of the gate, you know, I think my original conviction, and, and this is a conviction I hold today, is that our country and our cities and our states will not flourish unless the, 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 the leaders of those communities reflect the people who live there. If you think about the conversation we're having nationally, uh, I think so much of the the discord and some of what, what we're so upset by is the fact that people do not feel that their representatives actually adequately represent them. And, and so for me, you know, at 25 years old, it felt that that was actually um, the acorn I wanted to plant at that time, was to recognize that the, the best way to address the complex weave between in, in, a, in social, kind of fragmented social structures is to build leaders that have an eye towards redemption. And so, yeah, we started a scholarship program. It's called Act Six, and it has since scaled to many cities across the United States, but that's kind of where we began by empowering leaders. And, yeah, but and these are leaders of disadvantaged communities. I mean, you're, you're not, Act Six was not designed to help Bill Gates' children find a way. Exactly, yeah. Our goal um, has been and continues to be that we want to empower historically underrepresented leaders in communities. Um, there we see it, yeah. Acts 6. Yep, um, which comes from the scriptures, Acts chapter 6. 
Um, and, and the whole premise, of course, um, for those of you who follow Jesus or are interested in the scriptures, you could turn to Acts chapter six <laughs> right now if you're listening. But what you'll find in that chapter is um, in Acts two and Acts four, you get this picture of kind of harmony, unity in the body of Christ in the early group, the way. And there's sharing of goods, and there's, there's an, a recognition of caring for one another. And in Acts chapter 6, there's a group of Grecian widows who begin to complain because they're being overlooked in the distribution of food. The early church was, was a, a relatively hom- hom- homogenous group, I mean, led by a group of kind of Jewish insiders. And um, as these Grecian widows join among the ranks, they're being overlooked in the distribution of food, and they ask the question, well, what should we do? How should we address this? And the early leaders decide to appoint seven Greek leaders to meet the needs of the Greek community. Kind of targeted relief. A targeted relief. Oh, sorry. That's exactly right. <laughs> a targeted approach to address an issue that, that felt unjust in the early church. And this conflict was addressed. And when what, what's so inspiring about that is um, among the ranks are Philip and Stephen, who go on throughout the New Testament to take ground for God in ways that are much beyond um, the distribution of food to widows. But it is in that appointing of leadership, the, the mantle of leadership in the name of Jesus, where, where I think, um, where, I, where I derive hope for our future. And, and Acts 6 became a kind of a launching pad for more that's developed from what was the Portland Leadership Foundation, given that vision you just described, but which expanded and yeah. also prompted a name change, the contingent, because yeah. it, it got involved in other edges of uh, improving the spiritual and social life of the city you love. Right. So I know you developed a passion for foster care. Tell me about that. Yeah. So um, I think the more that you learn about your place, um, we're sitting here in Anderson, Indiana. I think if we were to drive around and, and you were to point out what you know about this place, you'd be able to show the, um, you'd be able to demonstrate, you know, some of the complexities of its history and how that points to current challenges. And I think in, in any given city, um, everyone has an understanding and an appreciation for the challenges that they face. And in, in Oregon in particular, um, and I think this is largely true of many states across the union, but, you know, we found ourselves here, uh, you know, in the last 10 years with a major crisis shortage of foster families in Oregon. And a friend of mine kind of recognizing our entrepreneurial bent said, hey, I've got this, uh, this deep desire to imagine how the body of Christ and how the church and how Oregonians at large could walk alongside um, the government to try to solve for this problem. Because the government couldn't handle it itself. That's right. So maybe if we were to think about this globally for all the listeners, imagine, you know, in the mid 20th century when the family unit began to break down. Ultimately, um, prior to that, um, the church and other institutions, other organizations saw themselves as responsible to care for families and to step in and to do something about it. But uh, by the mid 20th century, um, some of the salt and light was not as salty or not as light or something. We we had a complex challenge that we, we faced. And so many states began to be asked by the populace to solve for the problem. So in Oregon, in 1971, the state of Oregon launched the Department of Human Services. Um, every state has now one of these departments, but they they all launched somewhere between 1960 and 1970. And um, the Department of Human Services now in Oregon has grown to become the largest government agency in Oregon, serves one out of every four Oregonians. And in many ways, our thesis is that the body of Christ abdicated its responsibility to the government 
and saying, we need you to build a system. You take our money, you build a system. And, uh, and then what happened is the systems began to fragment and the systems began to fail. And so in the early 2000s, really across every state in the union, um, these government agencies struggled to serve the most vulnerable and I think still are struggling today. The, the outrage for me actually wasn't that the government was struggling. It was that the people um, just lobbed bombs and critiqued the government, right? So if you think about DHS or whatever the agency is in your state, if we did a word association, you'd come up with words like slow, bureaucracy, um, terrible, inept, inept. inept unable, um, unable to do this, you know, broken, broken, spends too much money, that kind of a thing. Well, as a follower of Jesus, it seems to me that um, if you really want to upset Jesus, mess with kids. He he he's if you wanna if you wanna get him riled up, hurt kids, and and ultimately. You know, we decided that it was no longer acceptable for the body of Christ and for the community at large to to point fingers at the government and say you're the problem. Maybe actually we're the problem. And so we built an initiative. It's called Every Child. Ryan, if you want to pull it up, everychildoregon.org. And uh, in 2013, we just decided, you know what we're going to do? We're going to stop this nonsense and we're going to hold churches accountable to their theology. And we're going to say, show up, earn the right to be heard with the government. Let's, let's actually go and ask the government, what do you need? How can we help? Um, we decided we were going to demonstrate hospitality to government employees. Um, we were going to love the state of Oregon. We were going to step in and, and actually accept our responsibility, apologize for previously not being present, and, and decide to do something about it. And a stream kind of turned into a river, and the river has turned into a flood. Yeah, but I remember you telling me a story once about how, you know, out in the Portland out in some kind of like strip mall area, there's a Oregon Department of Health Services office. Uh, people are milling about, and I mean, it's overwhelmed. Yeah. And what you just described is one of your first pitches was not actually to get into foster care per se, as it was to simply encourage those people who are on the front line. Yeah. Who, so who don't get any affirmation. I mean, what a thankless job, really, in the public mind. Yeah. So if you're listening to the podcast here, I'm about to issue you a double dog dare, which I don't do very often, but here it is. I double dog dare you to show up at your local human services agency and love them. And, and here's what happened when, when we did. Uh, one day, we, I went home um, in my 2004 silver station wagon, loaded up my rusted out barbecue, went to the grocery store, bought some sausages, and drove out to a, uh, what was kind of an old grocery store that had turned into a government office. Maybe that's what happens in your city too. And this old grocery store that's now a government office, there's about 150 people that work in a sea of cubicles, and they're responsible to care for the most vulnerable kids. They're responsible to care for the most vulnerable families. And the church hasn't been there for decades. And I, I, I thought this is actually the portal where the church ought to be working. And so instead of kind of coming in and taking some sort of high ground, we decided to come in and demonstrate hospitality, which again is an ethic of Jesus, it seems to me. And so we show up, we set the barbecue out, we start cooking, and I walk into this office and I say, hey, you don't know me, I don't know you. The truth is, I'm so thankful for all the work that you do. Um, I'm throwing an in impromptu barbecue in your parking lot right now. And I, and I, the people looked at me like, 
they couldn't figure out, should I call the police? Like, yeah. this is a crazy because person. We see all kinds of people coming. That's exactly guy. right. <laughs> this man has a rusted out barbecue <laughs> cooking bratwurst in our parking lot. Like, call the police, right? So, so I think some people were, were thinking, this is dangerous. And others thought, well, what if it's true? What if, what if, what if truly um, this is unmerited gift? What would that mean? And, and I just said, listen, I understand this is kind of weird, but it, it, I'd love it if you would invite your employees to come out and get a free lunch kind of on us. And, uh, and so people started coming out of this office, and the first woman that walked up was this woman. She had silver hair, and she, she was wearing 30 years of casework on her face. And I'm kind of nervous, and she's kind of nervous. And I, I grab the tongs and I get a sausage and I put it in this bun and I kind of hand it to her. And I just said, I just, wanted, I just wanted to say, thank you for all that you've been doing to care for kids and families in our city. And she took half the hot dog and I was like kind of trying to give it to her and she wouldn't take it. And it was just this kind of incredibly awkward moment. And I'm saying like, no, thank you. Like take the hot dog. <laughs> and she looked at me. And these tears just started rolling down her face. And she sat there and she stood there and she just sobbed. And she looked up at me and she said, Jim, she said, I've been working for the state of Oregon for 30 years. And this is the first time anyone from the community has ever said, thank you. And it was in that moment that, uh, that I, I knew that this was the beginning of a revolution. That instead of us kind of looking at this church and state thing as a conflict, that actually I think Jesus's intent is that the people of God would love the people who work for the government no differently and with the same kind of radical hospitality that they would love anyone. There is no government human. I don't know what a government human is. There is no such thing as a government child. Um, and the church has created a boogeyman that, uh, that is not who we think it is. And, uh, and so, Ryan, you could pull it up. That year, January of 2013, what happened is we, we started getting churches to adopt these local offices and to say thank you and to love them and to renovate them. And the Oregonian wrote an article called A Revolution in Portland's Foster Care. And... Uh, and from there, you know, um, we've seen this kind of flood, you know, if you will, kind of just take over. And today, what's called Every Child Organ is in all 36 counties across the entire state. And it's, it's, it's way past giving hot dogs to the workers in the office. What you're telling me is that church families, people in local churches throughout Oregon and all of its counties, have now opened their doors to become foster parents so that these children are not left in a motel room because there's no one to take them because that's actually what was happening. Right. And instead they're in a Christian home. I mean, when, when I think about the impact of that compared to some of the other church ministry initiatives that we often wave the flag for, it, yeah. I mean, how many are there? Like 6,000 kids or something? In, in Oregon in this next year, 11,743 kids will spend at least one day in foster care. So I mean, just think about that. If, if those children are touched by the appropriate loving intersection with Jesus people, mm -hmm. 
how much more powerful might that be over the long haul in their individual lives and, again, in the social fabric of our place uh, than some of the things that we're chasing down otherwise. Yeah, that's exactly right. And and so, you know, what we've seen is churches um, and the Jesus people step up and, you know, now um, 70% of all foster families in Oregon have come through Every Child Oregon. Uh, we are uh, officially responsible for recruiting foster families for the state. That is our job. The state recognizes us in that way. We the get, state has partnered with you. Correct. We well, get we get audited by the by the state of Oregon for our performance now. But but, but this vision of Jesus people became the indispensable player for the state of Oregon in a critical front line. That's of exactly right. Community life. Yeah, that's exactly right. Now and and so much so, Jim and Ryan, you might be able to find this. This last year, the federal government came out to Oregon to look at what we're doing with every child, Oregon. And um, Assistant Secretary Lynn Johnson, who leads the Administration for Children and Families, which is the federal agency During responsible. During the Trump years, the mm-hmm. Trump administration. That's right, yeah. That's the federal agency responsible for building foster care systems across the country. She and her staff came out and visited Oregon and and you know was quoted, again, in the Oregonian as saying like, hey, we want to replicate this in all 50 states. It's the best thing we've it's seen. It's the best thing that we've got going. And 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 that's where I think, you know, it's it's important for you as a listener when you think about Portland or you think about Oregon. Many of you think about this is a state that's unchurched. This is kind of the liberal west. And uh and I want you to hear me say it actually is the place where the body of Christ is doing something that's never been done before. And this Every Child Organ Initiative, which is still a thing, it's still continually developing, growing, critically indispensable piece of the puzzle for life in Oregon today. That led you to the next logical kind of progression, which is foster care opened your eyes to some of the the foster care challenges and these children's stories opened your eyes to some of the realities of the parents. Where are the parents of these kids? And many of them are imprisoned. Right. So, you know, one of the things that is our goal is, you know, and the goal of anyone that is familiar with foster care, the goal is to get kids back home to their parents and their families as soon as possible. Reunification is the ultimate outcome. And that's not always possible for a myriad of reasons. But these, these families um, where, where child abuse or neglect is taking place and children are removed from those, their parents, oftentimes there's a, you know, this is the scenario. This is, this is the environment that Jerry and Trey grew up in. And, and there's many things that are happening in that environment that lead to abuse and neglect. Um, and sometimes, uh, and we're kind of looking at all of the environment holistically, and we're working on a concept paper right now to talk to investigate another kind of angle of this. But one of the angles that dramatically affects children is when their parents are incarcerated. Um, and so in Oregon, we decided that we wanted to um, diversify, if you will, our strategy and instead of just working with the Department of Human Services, we, d- we d- began to develop a relationship with the Department of Corrections. And uh, ultimately what we know is that in Oregon, there are 14,000 people that are currently adults in custody. Two thirds of them are parents. And um, there is a, a massive impact on the life of a child when your parent is incarcerated. Um, it's, it's, not, it's not a guarantee if you're in foster care that you're ever going to see your parent while they're incarcerated. You know? and, and so we began to develop this conviction that every child 
has the should should be able to touch and see and talk to their parents, even if they are incarcerated. Um, and we we then began to investigate, like what is where where does this break down? This 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 parent gets arrested, they go into prison, they're in prison for a while, they may not see their their child. Their child longs to see them, but the system doesn't work in that way. And so we've we've built a system where we're it, we're overseeing visitation between children and parents while they're incarcerated. But the other real challenge is what happens when mom or dad leaves prison? And so in Oregon, and I think you know every state has kind of their own numbers, but it is a systemic issue, there is no government agency that carries the jurisdiction for the reentry process. So the state of Oregon's responsibility ends at the prison door. And men and women are given a bus ticket, and they're, they're, they're given um, a pat on the back, and, and the, the message is, in essence, good luck, figure it out. You've been with us for years. Doors open, good luck. Good luck. And, and, and the state of Oregon has not built a system um, to walk with moms and dads in their reentry experience. And so we decided, well, we're going to do it. And so we recently built an initiative called Know Me Now, and, uh, and it's designed to both ensure that children have a right to visit their parents, that they are visiting their parents while they're incarcerated, and also to decrease the recidivism rate. This is kind of a mind-blowing number, Jim. So 56% of men and women who leave prison in Oregon are rearrested within three years. And, um, and Jesus, I think, is, is all about that. He's all about trying to make sure that parents and kids um, are, are with one another. And he's also all about prisoners. Um, and it seems to me that this kind of message of the gospel is, and this kind of true and undefiled religion is how we think about orphans and prisoners and widows. And so we have, we don't have a widow's initiative yet, but we've got two out of three so far. <laughs> right, yeah, but, but so, so what's the, what do you say to the person who says, well, yeah, uh, that's really a problem. How sad is that? Because those people messed up. They went behind bars because they were mess ups. They were threats to the social fabric. Do you say you want to protect? And now your story is, well, uh, the, the penalty or the punitive nature that justice has demanded from them is just too hard to bear. So we're going to kind of ease that out. What do you say? I would say that there is always, a, you know, in many cases, there is a crime um, that's taking place and there is a victim. But I would also say um, that, uh, and to quote kind of the great Brian Stevenson, you know, um, we are not our worst mistake. That is not how God sees us. Um, and to look at every man and every woman as, an, as a vessel um, for potential redemption is I think how Jesus sees all of us, regardless of the mistakes that we've made. And so while justice um, is done and through, through a correction system and through a judicial system, it does not mean that as followers of Jesus that um, we just take our, we take our cues from those systems. Um, I think the ethics of Jesus actually push us into a gray space. You know, uh, one of my favorite musicals is the Les Miserables, and you know that was a book first. Well, yes. So I'll just say, <laughs> you, I haven't read the book, M Mr. English guy. That's right. I haven't read the book. But Author's name touche, is Victor Hugo. Touche, okay. Touche. Okay, go. But what I would say is, you know, I think uh, there's two kind of main protagonists, or one protagonist and an antagonist: right? Jean Valjean and, and Javert. Jean Valjean um, 
who is someone that experienced um, breaking the law and um, experienced the grace in the context of breaking the law, finds himself in leadership and is living in a way that embraces the space between black and white, um, this, this space that is gray. And it's, that is where grace flourishes. Grace flourishes in that gray space. Javert, the antagonist, can only live in black and white, and he throws himself off a bridge. And I think it's that the, the, the message of the gospel and the protagonist, almost if the Jesus figure, if you will, in Les Miserables is Jean Valjean, and it's, it's, also, it's also true of Jesus. Um, we're, we're confounded by Jesus throughout the New Testament and throughout the gospels because how is it that he came to both fulfill the law and also to abolish the law? How is it that he constantly is being trapped by the religious insiders and is constantly demonstrating this radical form of grace to those that find themselves on the fringes of society? And so when we think about how the gospel works in the street, when you think about how the gospel works in prison, it, it works in a way that embraces the gray. And so the judicial system and the penal system and the correction system works in black and white. And it is time for the Jesus people to step into this black and white space and instead of creating barriers to, to force one another to get over, um, we're saying, let's sit in that space and demonstrate grace and hospitality in a way that, that, honors, um, that honors Jesus. Would you say, I mean, I don't know that you've been in it long enough to actually have the data, but it would seem to me that someone who is incarcerated, let's say a woman, yeah. maybe she's there for some drug crime. And uh, she's separated from her children. I'm just going to hypothetical. She's got two kids, uh, five and seven, or three and five. And she's been behind bars for a while. And and what you've done through Know Your Neighbor in Oregon is actually make a way for her to maintain physical contact with her children while she's incarcerated. I mean, we could spend a whole other program, I think, describing how that can happen. Do you build a play park? in the prison so that the kids can come and be on the swing and mom can push uh, the child in the swing or whatever that's happening. So that when her time is done, when she's paid her dues, that's actually the premise of our correctional system, isn't it? You pay your dues. When she's paid her dues, wouldn't you think, or I'm just speculating, that her incentive to stay out of prison is greatly enhanced because when she walks out, her kids can run and hug her. That's right. And she's right. good. She's good. I'm not going back in there. That's right. But if that doesn't happen, the kids are in the custody of someone else and there's no relationship. It's way more removed as a motivator in her life. Is that, am I on point? Jim, you're a dad. I'm a dad. My soul is inextricably tied to my identity as a father. And I find God in this, this part of my identity. And for our systems to rob moms and dads of their ability to hold their child, is, that is wrong, and it is dehumanizing, and we have to think differently. And I want to applaud the men and women and the leadership of the state of Oregon from the governor on down to who's, who are committed to helping us think through this and committed to a different solution. But I will say this, there is not a thing that I would not do for my children. And, and 
and to even make a mistake and make a mistake that incarcerates you to to no longer have a chance to see your kids i think is a recipe for disaster but we have to be honest also some people aren't parents or dads like you and me yep who are not motivated in the same way and may not have the same emotional or values frame to to be a leech to their children in a way that helps them make right choices but the reality is everyone is redeemable and i'm hearing you say what can we do to make that doorway of redemption as wide as possible for that chance for a person who has paid their dues and also know your neighbor as we've talked about it it's also populated by jesus people right i mean what it requires are foster parents who might have a child or someone else who's an interlocutor who's a volunteer from a community of faith who is helping to steward that handoff or the relationship with the person who's incarcerated or yeah, the kids and, right and i would just say yes all of those kind of on ramps exist and and um, and we and and i have to go into that but i will say it just goes back to the mandate of matthew 25 we are saying to the church this is we don't we don't interpret matthew 25 as an opt in or opt out way to live we interpret Matthew 25 that quite literally that asks the question, when I was in prison, did you visit me? Yes or no? And we think, and, and we are compelling the people of God, those who follow Jesus, that there, we, are, we are saying we will, we will facilitate the answer being yes we're going to help you get there. We're going to help you get there. Okay, and so from Acts 6 to every child Oregon to... Know no, me now. Know me now. Uh, and, and here we are, which brings us full circle. Now there's the Oregon Cares Fund. Right. I mean, can't you just keep your nose out of other people's business? <laughs> <laughs> so here, it's kind of the progression is so important. And, and actually, <clears throat> at each of these ventures, Ben, I've seen you even though I'm not sure you see yourself in these stories. So for instance, in Acts 6, people are given a chance to become leaders who otherwise would not have the opportunity to be educated, uh, to be acclimated to the world around them in a way they can succeed and provide that, uh, and receive the status necessary to actually speak influentially. That was you. Yeah. And then there's the foster care thing. You weren't actually technically in foster care, but you were somebody who... Longed for a parent. Longed for a parent. I mean, you, you were left to your own devices. Uh, and here you are. And, and then there's um, the guy who's conscious of, of the child's perspective. I, I want to touch my parent. I mean, what would you give to be able to sit down at a table just like this with your dad? Right. Robbed his life, robbed when you were a child. But, I mean... There's that longing. Yeah. And, and here you're doing that. But from the other side, though, you have not yourself been imprisoned. One of the pivotal minutes in your whole life was when Snoop and Trey find them going to prison. Yeah. Okay. And there you are. And then there's the Oregon Cares Fund. Okay. So you're not black. You're never going to be black. But you're looking at the way in which the world works. And you've identified, here's a place where it's not really working yeah, well, I would say, I would say, Jim, sorry to interrupt you, but I would just say it goes back to 
and this is a, almost a poetic frame. The world is not black and white. Um, that is actually not how the world works. Um, and that is not how grace works, and that's not how the gospel works. There are, there are spaces that need to be explored where white people need to understand their privilege, need to understand the history, and step in and do something that might create misunderstanding. And so while I am not black, although I have many sisters and brothers who are, I am unwilling as a white person to not be in the game on behalf of the black community, which has created misunderstanding, um, death threats, hate speech, um, all kinds of terrible things that have been hurled my way as a result of the Oregon CARES Fund, and misunderstanding and accusation are a part of the gospel, it seems to me. And I just want to intervene here. Would you say that for all the things we've described, all the ways in which you have been kind of uh, on stage in Oregon on social causes, that your entrance into this particular initiative, the Oregon's Care Fund, has generated more uh, loathing uh, objection than the others have combined. In other words, you're experiencing a death threat now because of the Oregon's Care Fund. You didn't really get that with every child organ is that correct yeah i think that's right well, i mean but i mean it speaks to there's something in this issue mm-hmm. that is really deep it's really deep and it's going to remain deep and i think it is at the forefront of why um, why we are seeing the kinds of riots and protests that are turning violent um, because we are going to continue to remain in a violent space until we reckon with our racial history and our racial future in our country. And you've become a champion in the Organs Care Fund. It's not, it's not a single channel, but I mean, just, there's one illustration. You've become a champion uh, on, on issues of race uh, because you believe you have been privileged as a white guy. You know, it's um, kind of embarrassingly so, I, but but it's true. This last few months, I actually just published a book called A Kid's Book About White Privilege. Featured by Oprah. Featured by Oprah on her 2020 list of favorite things. It's true. Um, and this book um, has also kind of generated hate speech and, and not quite a death threat yet, although I'm kind of waiting for it it's uh, inevitable. at this point. Um, but all kinds of critique. Um, people saying to me, how dare you abuse your children and other white children by asking them to consider their race? This is manipulation of the worst kind. And, and here's a picture on screen, Ryan. Thanks for pulling that up. Yeah. And so, you know, as, as this book, as it's gone out, you know, um, has, has become almost kind of emblematic of um, the challenge that we face, and it's why I wrote it. And that is, it is important to me that white men in particular, but white people in general, begin to explore the question, what does it mean to be white? Jim, how often in your life have you actually kind of asked that question? What does it mean that I'm white? What is my white identity? We ask that of people of color all the time. What's it like to be black? What's it like to be brown? What's it like to be Native American in our country? Almost as, 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 as if to say from the high ground, like, it, I, this is normal up here. Whiteness is normal. So my everyday feels great because when I'm in the room, 
with other white people, that's, that is actually just kind of status quo. What does it mean? What does it feel like to be black? And, and I think this question of heck, ought we to investigate our whiteness, I think when we do, what we'll find is that there are un, un, unearned advantages, which is kind of the definition of privilege. Uh, there are unearned, unearned advantages that white people have benefited from some, from the time our country was founded um, to today. If you walk in to your local CVS or Walgreens and you go look for a Band-Aid in flesh tone, you will find a Band-Aid that looks like you. You don't have to think about the fact that, you, that if you were a person of color, you will not find a Band-Aid that looks like you. It's not going to blend in. That's right. Jim, uh, when you're late, uh, people assume it was because traffic was bad. Well, no. <laughs> well, <laughs> actually, anyone yeah. else in the audience <laughs> yeah, we could yeah. talk about? For me, there's like, oh, you're just a jerk. But anyway, go ahead. I'm just saying, generally speaking, yes, right. right? You know, there's, there are these kind of hidden rules um, that exist in our country um, along racial lines. And one of those truths that I would suggest is that the white experience is one that has experienced privilege over time. I, your question to me, Jim, how, how much time have you spent thinking about being white? Yeah, talk well, about it. Well, no, <laughs> no, you're the guest guy, but I do want to illustrate my own journey in, 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 a, in a way uh, that I haven't spent that much time. And I actually haven't wrestled with privilege because I never saw myself as privileged. Actually, in my own formative memory, I saw myself as deeply loved by my family but disadvantaged in my world because I was not athletic. Right. You know, so I, my world, my, my self-examination was more about, well, how can I navigate if I can't be on the football team? Because that's the key to esteem. Yeah. That was my world. Sure. I mean, I went to a high school where the football team was number one in state and everything all those years. What I'm just saying is I, I, I wrestled with what I considered to be my own challenges, not the benefits I had already in play, but as an adult man, and you know what, I'm 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 in better form now than I was as a kid. I've discovered my first discovery about privilege was being male, and it really came home. It comes home to me all the time. But when I travel, especially, I realize I do not I do not even think about what my wife would think about traveling. Yeah, and I had an experience where I got off an elevator in a parking garage at an airport just within the last year. And uh, it was late at night, and I ran to get the elevator to go to the top, the mm. fifth floor. Yeah. And there was a young woman, 20-something, already on the elevator. And when I got on, I, I mean, I just noticed her, but I, I went to the other corner. I mean, you know, give you, everybody needs their space. I'm walking on my cell phone. We go all the way to the top, number five, the door's open, and I'm waiting for her to get off. She won't get off. She will not get off. And I, I thought it was odd, and I, I'm, I'm just old school and... I was raised up, you know, women go first. So I just standing there and she won't go. And I give her, then I stare at her and give her a nod and, and go ahead. And she's frozen. Wow. In that moment, I realized, I mean, she was probably five, four, I'm six, two. In that moment, I realized she's not going to walk out so I can follow her hmm. because we're in an airport parking garage at midnight and there is nobody else here. And she has to calculate. She has to calculate what's safe for her. Who am I? What am I going to do? It's a thought that I never think about. And in that moment, I realized I am so privileged because I never think about that. But that's opened the door. Well, what other privileges do I have? 
I'm not intimidating her. I'm not a bad guy because I'm 6'2", or that I'm male. It's simply a consequence of the social fabric of our time. And therefore, I have to be conscious of that. And I, when I became conscious of it, I was able to walk off the elevator and I literally ran to my car so she would know I was not interested in harassing her. When you talk about white privilege, that's what just came to my mind because I don't know that I've struggled with white privilege in the same way because I have now learned I do have privileges that I did not seek, I did not earn, and for which I'm not necessarily morally responsible. But my moral responsibility is in the understanding of it, which is my little two cents worth back to the book I probably should read that you wrote. Well, I would kids just, for anybody. Yeah, I would say when you know, in doing some of the research, right? You talk to kids and you ask, you know, who's in charge? Who's the president? Who's the boss? Who's the teacher? Who's the principal? Um, culturally, kids have been taught that the people that are in power are white people, and I and I don't think we have to look very far to see that over time, and I don't think we have to look very far to see that currently in our present day. Oh, come on. Barack Obama was a black man. He was president. So what are those kids thinking? Well, I mean, juxtapose juxtapose um, all of the vice presidents and all of the presidents and add them all up on aggregate. And this, let's take an investigation and see how many of them are white and male um, compared to Barack Obama and Kamala Harris. And what does that mean? Does that mean that what white... What does it say? What does it say? Does it say that white men are smarter? Does it say that 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 people that, that in aggregate on and looking at the kind of the leaders and if asking the question, do they reflect the populace? If if the answer is not yes, then why is it? Well, and it would be your premise that someone might say, well, as an adult, I know that's preposterous. We're we're in a different age now. We all understand that that's not relevant. But actually, a child—I'm not sure all adults get that—but. A child is not looking at that lineup of presidential photos and analyzing it anyway, except saying, oh, look at all those people. That must be the way it goes. Right. And I decided that, um, and this has less to do with actually our history and has more to do with our future. Um, I am of the conviction that we are at the beginning of a 20-year period where we are going to have a national conversation along racial lines, and it is going to be... a conflated, and rightly so, with a story about income and wealth and access to healthcare, et cetera, incarceration rates, and that there is a direct correlation. And I'm not the only one. You know, I'm not the only, the data spells this out, that, the, that if you look at major indicators of health and wealth, those indicators are disproportionate, and you, and you pull them out and you disaggregate that, what you'll find is that White people consistently are outperforming communities of color in our country. But there are, we're also going to find, if you look at the census data and the population projection, that people of color are going to be are rising in our country in terms of the populace at a rate that we've, is unlike anything we've ever seen in the history of our republic. And in Portland, for example, 20 years from now, by the year 2040, the majority of children born in Portland, Oregon, will be children of color. And that's a, especially remarkable because... Portland has a history of being largely a white city. A state that was launched as a white utopia. Yeah, but I mean, just functionally. Right. The proportionality of populations, it's a rapid turnaround. So then you have to ask the questions about power, right? You have to ask the question, um, do those kids deserve to grow up in a world where the leaders um, are reflective of the populace? 
And that is actually at the core of the fear of what we're seeing in these uprisings. There's fear present on, uh, among many different sides of this kind of argument. But it, 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 need, it will be a conversation 20 years from now at a fever pitch. And that conversation is going to be fueled in the streets, um, hopefully, by a generation of white kids that understand white privilege, which is why I wrote the book. I didn't write it for you or for me. I wrote it for the 25 to 29 to 30-year-old 20 years from now with the hope that white kids will, will approach this power shift differently. It is coming, Jim. The power shift is coming. And white people will not be in power the way that they have been. And that will either lead to a great conflict or it will lead, or we will rise up a generation of white people who will seek to become peacemakers, which it seems to me uh, is also a part of the ethics of Jesus. Ah, oh, that Jesus guy. Everything you've described uh, in your sobering prophecy even is, uh, has only, only the gilded hope of, of a different way. Uh, not the way that we, we roll generally now. Uh, and for some of us, uh, some, some of us, some people who may be listening who long for an, an earlier day and things the way they were, uh, who feel uncomfortable in the present day because it's not like it used to be, or who wonder, can we just get back in the future to the way it used to be? Or you know, All of that um, is almost folly because the tsunami of change is inevitably approaching the shore. And how do we ride the wave? Yeah, I would say that let's first tell the truth. Um, and, and the truth in this case um, is that recognizing that we live in a world of disinformation, I think we need to get real clear on what the differences of, ex of lived experience are among racial groups. Um, the world's largest hedge fund owner um, uh, runs a hedge fund. is a guy by the name of Ray Dalio, and he recently was quoted. I think it was CNN, Ryan. Maybe you could pull it up. But you know, Ray Dalio is predicting similarly almost this kind of conflict, and he's he's primarily drawing it along. Uh, the lines of, of income inequality, right? So in, in this case, when we think about income inequality, our country, in our country, we tend to have that conversation along political lines. So Bernie Sanders is a democratic socialist and he wants to, he thinks about income inequality one way. Um, maybe someone that's more libertarian or more Republican thinks about income inequality differently. We all bring different strategies to the table. And I guess I'm here to say that we need to first start and name the fact that whether it's around income inequality or the, the wealth gap or disproportionality on health or other indicators, that there are these gaps that do exist. And the question, so let's start there. Do, do the gaps exist and what do the gaps mean? And, and then I would say from my perspective that the next premise is as followers of Jesus, how do we accept responsibility? What does that mean to self-govern? Um, and I think historically we've assumed that self-governance is you get the right elected official, you get the right person elected, and that person will carry your hopes for self-governance. And Jim, I just have to tell you, and I think this is true of, I'm in generation Y, right? I, I think this is true of my generation, Gen Y, and the research points this to Gen Z. Um, the younger generations no longer believe that the solution is going to come through politics. And I see that 
as, a, as an opportunity, a window for the gospel. I see that as a window for the church. And, and so when we consider the complexity of the problem, if you assume that self-governance is going to require a new modality, well, for a social entrepreneur like me, let's start chopping wood. Would you say there's a, there's a common aspiration for equal opportunity? In other words, the, the phrasing, equal opportunity, is something that lands for everybody. The, but the truth is, everyone doesn't have equal opportunity. Yeah, and this is, a, sorry to interrupt you, but I would say I love that question because um, this is where I think our culture war is, is really mm -hmm. kind of smacked, right at the epicenter of our culture war is this question of what is equity and what is equality? And ultimately, um, where we land on equality of outcome versus equality of opportunity, I think, is, is at the crux of this conversation. And as that is, is the wrestling, if that's the question. And, you know, Jesus said, you're always going to have the poor. I mean, the reality is in human life and experience, uh, there are always going to be some hard places. But how do we make it a better place? How do, how do we advance uh, the opportunity and the outcomes to, to live in an abundant life of kingdom life that uh, Jesus articulates and models and so on. And with all that in mind, and, you, and you're talking about your generation and the one behind, and, and that this is the inevitable march of, of the conversation. In other words, like it or not. That's right. <laughs> here we're, here, it's there. And all the cable news you watch that may try and change the subject is not going to be able to escape the reality. This is coming. That's your view. And, and you also reference that you, you're persuaded that this, these generations that are moving towards center stage are not going to look to the government or politics in the way that has been known by earlier generations. And actually there's a, I'm, I'm leading the witness here, you know, isn't there kind of like a, a trust deficit institutionally that many of the institutions that we've taken for granted as stabilizing anchors are increasingly in a zone of, they're not being trusted. And the younger generation you are, the less amount of trust you have, whether yeah. that be the government or a university yeah. or a church or, or what. Yeah, I would say, uh, Ryan, if you could pull up, there's this uh, article that David Brooks wrote in The Atlantic, um, and he talks about this kind of revulsion of, of what's happening in our country today. And at the thesis of the article is that social trust has eroded to a dangerous level. And what we previously placed trust in, previous institutions like the church or government, et cetera, um, that, that we no longer um, are in a position where we are offering moral authority to the places where, or to the people who once held moral authority. And so... Um, it cannot be assumed. It cannot be assumed that, that, that trust is going to grow. And so um, this piece from Brooks is, is truly, in my view, it's actually the best thing I've read in years um, in terms of a spot-on analysis of our current American moment. And it is my belief that social trust can be rebuilt, but it is going to require a kind of innovation and a commitment to thinking about neighbor differently, which is, of course, no surprise here, very much a Jesus idea. But it is going to require neighbors loving neighbors in spite of their differences. 
Um, and it's going to be that, it's going to require that at scale as opposed to the, the thought that, um, and, or that, that the current or previous institutions that have been entrusted are going to be doing that. And, um, and I, I, I've bought that premise. New systems. New systems, new organizations, new delivery systems for neighbors loving neighbors. And the word new implies something that has not been before, but actually that brings us all the way back to the circle. Because you're in this because Jesus actually defined that for you. When I was 14, 15 years old, questioning, who can I trust? In what shall I place my trust? Can I trust that there is a future for me in light of the fact that when I look at my past, I do not trust? In the form of a college student, Jesus of Nazareth walked into my life and said, you can trust me. You, you can bow your knee to me and place your trust in me. I can carry um, your cynicism. I can carry your political fervor. I can carry your anxiety. I can carry your pain. I can carry your past and I can carry your future. But in order to do that, you're going to have to um, bury the treasure, sell everything, and buy the whole field, Ben. And, and that is, in essence, Jim, I, uh, that has been the, the goal of my life. Sometimes Some days are better than others. It's risky business, though, isn't it? Yeah. Because it's an, even as we observed, your whole on pursuit of that Jesus has led you into places that have provoked threats and difficulties and challenges and punches that you could avoid by playing it more safe. All of that to say, what would you say, Ben Sand, to an audience listening to this thinking, I don't know if I can do that. I uh, learned of a friend her name's Margot, and I just heard a story about um, this decision that she made to begin to make these meals on Mondays, and she's kind of selling them to her friends. And for every meal that she sells, she's making another meal to give it to someone who is in need, to give it to someone who cannot afford a meal. And I would say that that's scalable for you as the listener. Who is it in your neighborhood that is hungry? Who is it in your neighborhood that is lonely? Who is it in your neighborhood that deserves the dignity of a home-cooked meal? Or the person at the DHS office. That's right. Who, where, where ought you to deliver a bratwurst? <laughs> you know, I, I don't think that, uh, that the goal is some sort of scalable solution for everyone. I think the goal, the scalable solution is everyone loving their neighbor. Some of us are, are built and wired and, and asked to build the delivery system. And, and some of us just need to deliver the meal. Ben Sands, so proud to know you. 
Thanks for what you're doing. I don't live in Portland, but my world is better because you're there. Yeah. Jim, I want, you to, I want to say to you that, uh, and I want all the listeners to hear me say this, so I'm taking my moment here at the end. I admire you. I admire the way you live. I admire the way that you are leading us. And so all that to say, like, please lead on. Thanks for joining us today. Godspeed. For more information, visit allthattosay.org. Thank you for joining the conversation. Don't forget to like and subscribe.